Welcome to another message in God's wonderful Word. Here at the Hillsdale Bible Church, we aim to learn God's way, that we might live God's way. May the words you hear today draw you closer to Him. Open your Bibles and your heart as we learn together in this message. talking about God's will here in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to do it again today. Alright, chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 9, and verse number 10, where we're going to be focused. Our study has been, for the last 11 weeks, a look at God's investment in you. It's an amazing section of scripture. And uh, we have uh, seen so much. And I hope by now you're, ac- you're, you're adequately convinced that God loves you. And that he is involved in your life. Actively involved in your life. We speak about the God of the universe. Who is intimately evol- involved in your entire existence. He planned to save you, and that plan stretches all the way back before this world even began. He brought you to himself through the death of his own son, Jesus Christ. You have been united to him through faith, and the Spirit's uh, regeneration, where we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And he's made us alive together in Christ, and adopted us into his family, and redeemed us, and forgiven us. And, he's secured a place for us. We read of his inheritance, and what has yet to come for us, the experiences we will have in the future, all these things he has done. Are you convinced he's involved in your life? That's kind of a summary of chapter number one, that we've been looking at here together. We read of God knowing our coming and our going. In Psalm 139, He is aware when you rise up and when you lie down. He knows your thoughts. He knows uh, your words before you say them. He numbers the hairs on your head, the numbers of days that He has for you to live on this planet. He knows all that and so much more. We might simply say, he knows everything, right? And he does. The fact is that you and I cannot live apart from his will. We cannot live apart from his will. This is 
this God that we're going to talk about today. So if we're going to do that, we're going to need his help. So let's ask him in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we start here this morning in your word, we come to you as, as those who are hungry, and you will give us a feast. As those who are hurting, and you will heal us. As those who are confused, and you will lead us. You are the God of this universe, and yet you love us. And we are so blessed. Thank you, Lord, for that. Help us again as we go into your word and seek to understand it, that uh, you might drive those truths home, anchor them in our hearts, may we live in accordance to what we learn, that you might be glorified in every aspect of our being, since it is that which you're involved in. So help us this day to learn again and to apply what we learn to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we've talked about God's will here, we have seen in the last couple of verses, as we were down here in Ephesians number chapter 1, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Now we're going to spill into verse number 10 a little bit and speak of these words with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, Things in the heavens and things on the earth. <laughs> this is very complete. It's all-encompassing. There are no details left undone. That's amazing when you think of, of all the details that go into planning anything on this earth. I once recall during the course of a uh, Bible conference at Moody Bible Institute, uh, one of our... Uh, men who introduced the speaker that day, just took a moment to explain all the details that go into setting up a conference. And he had, as we used to have off the computer, the, the spreadsheets that came off, they were all folded over and they were joined with the perforation and there were just stacks of them. And he started to list all the things that they were doing to set up a conference. It's more than just a person standing here. But this, this page just kept unraveling in front of him as he, he showed all the details of all the departments of all the people doing all the things to make it happen. And that's amazing for every single thing that we look at and we take for granted. There's so much more to it than that. Now, put it this way. God is overseeing how much of this world? All of it. And does he have pretty good control? <laughs> He's got all of it. And there is no detail undone. That's amazing to me. And when we talk about his will, it's complete. And it's all-encompassing. And it's brought about in a very special way. As he addresses to us his desire and his love and his grace and his mercy... And his kindness, he does it in such an exceeding way, as we've already seen. In verse number 8, uh, he has lavished it upon us. So it's, a, it's an abundant measure of grace and of kindness, lavished on us through his love in an overflowing measure. See, we're not merely kept in his will. We are overwhelmed by the generosity of our God and His 
purpose in our life. We should be overwhelmed by it in our response when we think of this work that God is doing. We started a study stating in verse number 3 a simple phrase that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Are you starting to get a feel for that? We are blessed. Blessed. Thoroughly, thoroughly blessed in every single way. So that's where it brings us here, in verse number 10 especially. But as Paul starts to go through these things, we're going eventually to get to verse 17 and 18 and 19, where he he just breaks into a prayer for the Ephesian believers. And his desire is that they might understand it. And the words that he says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. I pray, Paul says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And that too is my desire as I share with you. I'm not aiming at your head. I'm aiming at your heart. That your heart may be engaged when you realize what God has done for us. Your heart may be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? Does that sound like a God who's involved in your life? Wow! This is an incredible section. See, folks, God's will is not something to fear. Some people fear it. But I believe it's something to relish, something to rest in, something to rejoice in. And I hope that catches on as we go here this morning. Uh, the wonderful thing we see in verse number 9 is that it has been revealed to us. We talked about that last week. It's not a mystery to us that God loves us so. It is recorded in His Word. It's very clear in His actions. It should not be a mystery. The fact is, it's not to be disputed. It's not to be doubted. It's not to be discredited. It has been made known. And we saw that especially last week in verse number 9. So today we're going to learn something new, or something else about His will, and it does involve you, so you need to pay close attention again, and verse number 10 is almost a tongue twister. Matter of fact, if it's not a tongue twister, it's certainly something that, that makes the brain a little bit challenged to figure out. He speaks of, a, of, a, of His purpose in verse number 9. His purpose, a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times. You know, that's a mouthful, just to say that much. I read to you out of the New American Standard Version. Some of you carry that with you here. And it says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. And you're saying, what is that? (laughs) What is is this concept here? So I thought, well, maybe as complicated as it sounds, uh, the words certainly do, uh, by themselves, they're a little easier to understand. But I went into several other translations to see, well, how did they say that same phrase? If you carry a King James or even a New King James, you might have a phrase like this in verse 9 and 10. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that is, the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in, all, in one all things in Christ, both in the heavens and that which is on the earth. Now, that makes it clear, right? 
All right, so I said, maybe the English Standard Version, some of you carry that. That might help. And he says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I said, okay, well, plan instead of dispensation or administration. It sounds a little easier, shorter. You can spell it quicker, too. The NIV, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Say, so, hmm, well, that's also a trying to clarify a very complicated passage. Back in 1965, there was a translation uh, written called The Bible in Basic English. Now, that sounds like one I really need to read. Basic English is hard. Some of us have challenged by it. So we learn foreign languages like Greek. Um, but uh, basic English in verse 9, having made clear to us the secret of his purpose, in agreement with the design which he had in mind to put his hands, uh, to put into his hands the ordering of the times when they are complete, so that all things might come to a head in Christ, the things in heaven and things on earth. So I've read through these, and I see words like administration and dispensation and a plan and a putting into effect and an ordering of the times, and all of that still can sound a little bit confusing, so I've worked it down to three things. Right? That's always a perfect sermon, right? When it's got three points. And you can count them now as I go through it. But uh, I want to start with this. In this verse, number 10, we're talking about the central activity of God's will. The central activity of God's will. We've called it an administration suitable to the fullness of time. Now that's a word that's, that we could translate as a stewardship. A stewardship. God's design includes a stewardship. The concept of a, of a steward or a stewardship uh, goes way back in Scripture. It's not foreign in any part of Scripture that I know of. But uh, one of the earlier recollections we have of it is a man named Abraham. He had a steward, a head of his household. His name was Eliezer. Now, to show you how significant this man was, Abraham was a wealthy man. He had quite a number of servants. He had quite a number of uh, uh, animals. He had uh, um, just a, a large portion to have to be controlled and overseen. And this man served in that purpose. But even more so, this is what shows you how important it was, uh, he was entrusted by Abraham to go pick a wife for his son. When's the last time you hired somebody for that purpose? That's pretty significant, isn't it? He also, as Abraham would later on say to the Lord, he says, He is my only heir. And this was kind of interesting, because if Abraham uh, lived out his days and died, and his wife was still alive, and his nephew and his family was still alive, this is the man who inherited it all. That's how significant he was. He was the heir for Abraham. So, that's a pretty significant position, isn't it? We say it later in the book of Genesis, in the life of Joseph. Joseph was taken into the house of Potiphar, 
one of the high-ranking officials in Egypt, and he was in charge of everything in Potiphar's house but his wife. And there was a story about that uh, you can read in Genesis sometimes. But he was the overseer of the whole house. That was a significant role Joseph had in that day as well. Uh, everything that was owned by that man was under Joseph's control. And Joseph was a foreigner. Joseph was bought like a slave. And he was given such a position. Now in the New Testament, we find the concept of stewards often mentioned, especially in the parables that Jesus would tell. How he left his, he would tell of a master who's left his money to these uh, stewards to go and invest it. He would leave his vineyards to these stewards to take care of them. He'd leave his crops to these stewards to care for them. Some of them turned out to be good servants, and some of them turned out to be poor servants, bad servants, right? He used many examples of stewards and responsibilities that they were given. Now, I gave you that whole picture because that is the family that this word comes from in verse number 10, what they call it administration in the New American Standard Version. An administration, it's a household term. That which controls the affairs of the house. Controls uh, the uh, actions and the money and the direction and the protection and all that belongs to the house. It's a very important term. And to entrust it to a single individual is, is an awful lot of faith. Now, I read a lot of uh, old English novels. I especially like uh, Charles Dickens' works. And, and there are several instances where he tells a story of a, perhaps it'd be a young lady who's in the home of somebody who's wealthy. And she's brought in there, but uh, she's recognized very quickly in the story as the one who's over the house. And within a few moments of her arrival, the maid will show up with the keys. That's a sign of authority. And hand the keys to this young lady. She's in charge of the house. She's in charge of everything. Now, I carry these sets. Usually I don't carry them into the pulpit because I don't like all that extra weight. It wears me down quicker and things like that. But um, I, I was looking through my keys the other day, and I thought, you know, if I handed you these keys and said, here, you'd have my truck. All right? Full tank of gas. That's, that's quite a thing anymore. But uh, full tank of gas, you could take it, you could drive it, all these things. That's authority. I could give you this key, too. That unlocks the back doors on the cap of my truck. You might need in there for something. And whatever I keep in there, you could find it if you had that key. This key will get you in the front door of the church over by my office. Imagine all that's in here, controlled by this. You can get in, access to the church with this one. Or you can come in the back door of the church with this one. Or you can get into the youth building with this one. And you have access to all those. Here's the mailbox key. Boy, that's authority. You get the mailbox key, you can check the mail and see what we get. Uh, over here on the other side, I've got another set. Let's see. what I, It took me a while to remember what this one was for. You ever have a key like that? Say, what is that? I sat there for the longest time in the office just looking at it, saying, what is that one? Then I was kind of reminded. I have a storage unit in Enid, and 
if you want my junk, here it is. All right? This one will get it to you in the house over down the street at the parsonage. This will get you in my mailbox. All right? This one will let you drive the little Honda. That, too, is a full tank of gas. All right? Now, we, we carry these things around, and we say, okay, well, you know how valuable they are when you don't have them. Right? Last night, my son locked his in his Jeep just as he's about to go. He couldn't start it. He couldn't go home. He couldn't even get in his apartment because he didn't have the keys. Oh, we did get him in. But uh, in all this, we speak of authority, don't we? You have the keys. You have authority. We speak of uh, uh, access. You have the keys. You can get in. You, you speak of control. You shut the door. You lock the door. You open the door. You unlock the door. There's control in that. There's management in that concept. And so in the old English concepts, when you handed somebody the keys to the estate, well, you gave them a lot of authority. Now, with those words, this is what God's will is, is to be explained to us in some fashion, that it is an administration. It's a stewardship. It's, it's an issue of control. It's an issue of access. It's an issue of... Uh, um, authority and management. And we're not talking about somebody's car or somebody's house or somebody's checkbook for that matter. We're talking about the universe, aren't we? The will of God and all that's involved in that. God has designed it in a stewardship. Now hang on to that because it's very important that we first have that understood. The words say so. But it's also said something in verse number 9 concerning that. Before we even got into those phrases, it spoke of a purpose. Something which he purposed in him. The last four or five words of verse number 9. Something he purposed in him. When I looked up that word, it, the word actually, more than just purpose, we use that as will. Uh, but it's the word setting something before you. Setting something before you. It's like setting up a display or, or setting up uh, a reminder. I, I used it as a concept of a reminder. Uh, God, in his will, in his design, in all these things that he's telling us about, he sets something before himself. This purpose was set before himself. And I thought, that's a, a pretty interesting thing to, to kind of let my mind think through for a minute. Because there are ways that uh, I seek to remember things. On a wall in our dining room, we have a giant whiteboard there, and, and I write things on there. We've got shopping lists that we write things on. The rule is, if it's not on there, if it's not on the calendar, if it's not on the whiteboard or the shopping list, it doesn't happen. Alright? So, if it's got to be written down. It's got to be put on there. We, we do all kinds of ways to remember things. Some of you will put it in your phone. You're typing little messages to yourself. Uh, some people will even set their phone to go off like an alarm. And then they say, oops, I should have been somewhere when it goes off. But there's reminders that we use all the time to, to know what to do. Some, some will use the refrigerator because, you know, we do visit that every now and then. So stick a note on the front of the refrigerator or the bathroom mirror or someplace. Does God have a refrigerator? Does God have a place where he sets things to remind himself? You say, well, God doesn't need any reminder. No, I, I know he doesn't. 
He, he doesn't need anything to, to prompt his memory to remember what to do. But why does he take the display of his whole will and set it before himself? That's what caught my curiosity. Why would he do such a thing that he would set his whole display up? You know, to do that, I, would, I picture it like this. You know, we, we talk of buildings being built and we always put those big old marquees or the, the boards up to show what it's going to look like and things of that nature. And perhaps if there was such a thing, it would be not only something that God would see, but all the other occupants of heaven would see it too, wouldn't they? They would be very mindful of what God is doing. If they all saw the same display, if it was written up before them, it would mark his determination, wouldn't it? If he'd said it before himself, that would show you he's quite determined to accomplish these things. Matter of fact, if it's that important to him that he sets it before himself, that, that's pretty impressive to me. It shows you also if he has set his will set his will before himself, that means he's not going to alter it. He set it. And it's complete and it's determined and it's unchanging. And I've noticed that all the way through Scripture. We don't have a God who is responding to the things of this world. We have a God who controls the things of this world. We have some in theology today who, who thinks that God's trying to catch up. He doesn't know tomorrow. He doesn't know the future. He doesn't know anything. I, I don't like that kind of a God, do you? I like a God who knows, and He does know. And He records, and He sets in motion, and He's not responding. He's the initiator. So we read of a God who's set this before Him, and He marks this pattern of all things that are designed, all things running according to His will. All things will match according to what He has set before Himself. That's His purpose. So, as the the steward comes into the scene, if you will, on a, a simple concept, the steward comes in, and He's not doing His will. He's doing the will of the one who designed it. Right? Would you like to hire somebody to run your house that does it their way and not yours? Of course not. That's the picture. God has already set it in motion. Now, that's the central activity of God's will. It's a stewardship. All right? It's something set. It's established. It will not be changed. It's His design. It's His plan. And He has initiated it, and that's the way it's going to be. I like that part. But I especially like point two that goes with it. In verse number ten, it speaks of a stewardship, uh, administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things, sounds very impressive, in Christ. There's a central personality in God's will. Notice back in verse number 9 as we finish that phrase, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Right? In him. And again he says it in verse 10, where he sums up all things in Christ. And at the end of verse number 10, you also might have these words, things in heaven, things on earth, in Him we also obtained an inheritance. It just goes on and on and on, and the verses we've noticed throughout this passage, it focuses on Christ. In Him, in Him, in Him, through Him, by Him, God has designed all these things. He is the central figure, the central personality in God's will. I want to show you a couple of related passages that will concrete this for you. Go to Colossians chapter number 1. 
Colossians chapter number 1. This is the way uh, Paul wrote this in verse 16 on through verse number 22. I'll just read to it. But notice very carefully how Christ is the center of all these things. Because he is talking about uh, his beloved son in verse 13 in the context. He's basically in verse 13, his, his beloved son in whom, verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he starts to describe him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, you see that phrase? All things have been created through him and for him. That's powerful, isn't it? He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For this was the Father's good pleasure, for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Excuse me. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in every engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I like the way that uh, progressed. The whole universe is made by him, and then he starts to aim right at us, doesn't he? He says, and you too. You too are part of all that he controls, all that he's about, what he's done for you in giving his own life, that he may present you before him, holy and blameless. Amazing passage. Amazing passage. He's the central figure of that. Do you see it? Let's go to another one. It's in Romans chapter 8. Very precious little set of verses here. Romans 8, the last, last handful of verses, starting in verse 29. I know these are very familiar to you, but again, let's focus on who's the center of it all. Romans 8:29. For those whom he foredew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? It's pretty tough. But can it? No. Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? 
just as it's being written, we're, for your sake we're being put to death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overly, overwhelmingly conquer through Him. You see it? Through Him who loves us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that powerful? Who's the central figure in all that? Who keeps it all there? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I just love these words. He holds the keys, folks. He holds the keys. He even said so on several occasions. Revelation, he meets with John. John sees him in, in the Isle of Patmos. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and to Hades. Then he says to his disciples, as he's about to ascend up into heaven, he says to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who gave him that authority? His father did, right? He's the steward of everything in his father's household and administration. All authority was given to me. He says it again in Revelation 2.27. I have received authority from my father. He makes that point again in Revelation 3 verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. That's quite a picture. That's his authority. So if you talk about the universe, or if you talk about you, who's the authority? Who's the one who oversees it all? Who's the center of it all? Who's the central personality in God's will? The Lord Jesus Christ. There's a quote, I, I've just got to read it to you. I love this passage. I even heard on an audio this man speak, and I've shared it with you here once before, I'm sure. Uh, doc, Dr. S.M. Lockridge says, now with the Lord, he pastored a church in San Diego, California, uh, for a great number of years. He came to Moody to speak, and that's where I heard the message that he shared there. And this passage, you could even find it on the uh, Internet, now everything else is, so this is there too. And it's entitled, He's My King. And this little quotation is one of his phrases. When he got to the end of the Lord's Prayer, Thine is a kingdom, this guy stopped and just, I don't know, he burst with theological information about the Lord. Uh, uh, and so I'm going to just share it with you. This is what he said. Speaking of Jesus, He's my king. He's enduring enduringly strong, he's entirely sincere, he's eternally steadfast, he's immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, he's impartially merciful, he's God's son, he's a sinner's savior, he's a centerpiece of civilization, he stands alone in himself, he's unparalleled, he's unprecedented, he's supreme, he's preeminent, he's the loftiest idea in literature, he is the highest ideal idea in philosophy. 
He's the fundamental truth in theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sins. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He beautifies the meek. My king is the king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. And his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm telling you that heaven cannot contain him. Let alone a man explain him. You cannot get him out of your mind. You cannot get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they they couldn't stop him. Pilate could not find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave could not hold him. And that's my king. He's always been. He always will be. I'm talking about that he has no predecessor, and he has no successor. There was nobody before him. There was nobody after him. You can't impeach him. He's not going to resign. We try to get prestige and honor and glory to ourselves, but the glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Then he says, oh, I wish I could describe him to you. That's our king, too. That's our savior, too. We read of this one. Because of Him. Because of Him. Because of Him. We have all these things. Because of Him. That was God's plan. Do you know that? That was God's plan. I bring it back to a simple thing. Do you know Christ is your Savior? You see what you have in Him? Everything. Everything. Do you know Him as your Savior? He came and died for you. That's incredible. That he should die for any of us. But he did, didn't he? He died for us. That's God's central personality in his will. But there's also a central conclusion to it too. Central conclusion. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. We see these words and they stand right here in front of us. Verse number 10. A view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up. Of all things in Christ. Things in the heaven and things on the earth. The summing up of it all. You know this world according to, to the book of Romans chapter 8. It's groaning right now. You can almost hear it. If you sit outside at night in the dark. You hear that moan, can't you? Not really. But it, the, the scripture talks about the earth 
groaning. It's not where it's supposed to be. God had designed it, as you know, before Adam and Eve sinned, and, and then the, the earth had to be put under a curse. We couldn't have lived on it, to tell the truth. We were already sinful beings at that point, and sinful beings living on a perfect environment, that just wasn't the right setting for that. God put his hand on the earth too and put it under a, a curse, and it's longing for the day when that will be released. Romans 8 talks about it in several places, but there's a couple of words. Verse 21, the creation itself will also be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And he says also in Romans 8, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's hope behind all these things. That's why Paul could cry out in Romans chapter 7, Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many times do we read things just like this? Where we go into 1 Corinthians 15 and it talks about how we shall be changed, right? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Who's going to do that? The Lord Jesus Christ himself would descend from heaven. Thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his plan. This is what God has designed. And, and he goes on, if we have time, we don't. But in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the order of it all. And how it will be all brought to the throne of God itself. And all of it rendered unto the Son. And the Son will take it all and give it to his Father. Amazing. We're looking for that, folks. We're waiting on that day. When it all be seen and visualized, we'll realize it. Even as we read what we see in Scripture, we'll know it to be true. You take a look at God's will, and you see it's so enormous. Isn't it amazing that you're a part of that? You're a part of that? He didn't leave you off, you know, uh, some unimportant footnote way down on the back of a page, 400 way, pages in. He, he's put us in this picture. When he's talking to the Ephesians, he's talking about the great thing that God is going to do and it includes us. The central activity, the stewardship he designed, the personality of our Lord Jesus Christ, the conclusion where it's all summed up in him and yet it involves you too. You're a part of that. What is your relationship with his will? Let me ask you that. On your side, personally. Maybe you're indifferent to it. No big deal. You've heard this stuff before. Maybe, maybe uh, that suggests a cold heart. You can hear these words and not respond. You, you can go by without paying any attention to it. You can operate your whole life as you see fit and not think one thing about God's will for your life. I suggest that Scripture does, draw near to God. Draw near to God, and here, draw near to you. Maybe you're out of fellowship, and, and uh, that might suggest even a black heart. You smeared it with the filth of this world, and you don't feel welcomed in God's presence, and, and you probably at this time don't feel like He'd even care about you, or even leave you as a part of His plans. 
Scripture says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Maybe you're just plain resistant. Maybe you've got a hard heart. Maybe you fought against His will. You think His plan is going to do you some harm for some reason. He says, humble yourself in the presence of God and He will exalt you. You know, God is opposed to the proud, isn't He? But what does He give to the humble? Grace. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe you've got a weary heart. Same writer I've been quoting from here says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. You see, God's will is not something to fear. As I said earlier, it's something to relish, something to to rejoice in, something to rest in. He's in control, is he not? All these things, and it involves you and me too, we can rest in his will. It's part of the blessings. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, his will is part of that in your life too. Let's talk to him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now when we get such an awesome view of who you are and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he's done. And we realize how you're orchestrating everything according to your plan, and you've said it before yourself, and it will not change. And you love us. You are mindful of us. You know the number of hairs on our head. You know our thoughts. You know our words before we speak them. You know when we rise up. You know when we sit down. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. But Lord, we thank you for it. We are so glad we have a God who's very active in our lives. May we not forget that this week. As we go into our places of work, as we spend time with our family, as we spend time in the home, as we spend time in the neighborhood, wherever we might find ourselves, Lord, may we be mindful that you are a God who's involved in our life at this very moment. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. If there might be some among us today who do not know Christ as Savior, draw them to yourself, Lord. Show them again how great a Savior He is and what He's done for them, how through Him they can have eternal life and all these blessings we're enjoying as we read through them. Thank you, Lord, for it. We give you the glory today, the glory, the honor, the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.